Just a quick disclaimer before we get going, Pushing the A is neither sanctioned by Maureen nor is it sponsored by anyone, so thank you for fighting the system. And if this song was about Atlanta, or maybe just about Dixie, it could be rather accurate. If you were a slave owner in the 1800s, alas, the song is not about that, nor is it about slavery in the 1800s, nor are any of us, thankfully, our slaveholders in the 1850s, so... This song is about Havana. Welcome back to Pushing the A, Chapter 19. This is almost a direct lead up to Civil War. Chapters 20 and 21 look at it economically and battle wise. So let's get going. The year is 1852. Harriet Beecher has just published the book Uncle Tom's Cabin which is a reaction to slavery. Uh, more specifically, it's a reaction to sort of seeing the slave trade and the slave auctions and how families can be split. And people say, God wrote this book. Millions of copies are published of this book. It really does help start the Civil War. Uh, the South loathes the book and it loathes her. They say, you've never seen slavery in person, which is partially true. So they say, if you've never seen it, you can't talk about it like this. The youth read it and Europeans, working class Europeans read it. And pro-North pro sentiment uh, really begins in these European countries, which is important because otherwise these European countries would intervene on behalf of the Confederacy. Hinton, our helper, in 1857, reads the book The Impending Crisis of the South. He is a poor white, he hates slavery, he hates slaves, and he writes an explanation on why poor whites are who are going to be hurt the most, or who are hurt the most through the process of slavery. Now, poor whites don't read this book, nor do they care. They probably don't read this book because they probably can't read. However, the rich slave-holding men and women at the South do read this book, and they notice, um... In the North, this book is spread as Republican literature, and as everything seems to be a part of it these days, this more than adds to the North-South tensions that have already been percolating. So, flashing back to Kansas, where uh, basically a bunch of people hoping to make the state a free state despite popular sovereignty and what's expected to happen, making it a slave state, or expecting to make it a slave state. Um, and more and more of these people are coming in, um, and they're looking for land, but some of them are financed by abolitionists. Uh, the New England uh, Free Soil, the New England Emigrant Aid Company helps free soilers um, enter and try and help them through the process, and they also give them some rifles to defend themselves. They're trying to make it tough for the South to 
take this state as a slave state without um, any contest. The South is wondering what's going on because they're abolitionizing the uh, beautiful state of Kansas. So some Southern hotheads send owners who are armed with their slaves, but nobody wants to take their slaves to a land where A, they might be free within the next few years, and B, they might die because there is a lot of fighting about this whole slavery versus no slavery debate. One census showed just two slaves in the entire state. Um, in 1855, the first election is held a bunch of pro-slave border ruffians from Missouri come in um, and they vote 20, 30 times, whatever, and they win the election, they set up a puppet government, which is basically a pro-South slavery government. Um, the pro-South slavery government is based in Shawnee, Shawnee Mission. The abolitionist government is based in Topeka and based on, uh, based on the current capital of Kansas, Topeka. You can guess which one ends up which side ends up winning. Kansas, though, is in utter mayhem. Uh, it's called Bleeding Kansas. John Brown, who you're going to hear more about later, comes in from Ohio. Uh, he sends men to Pato... Oh, my God. Potawatomi Creek. think so. Kills five pro-slaveryites. Um, this hurts the free soil cause. Uh, and in 1856, eventually it turns into another civil war. In 1857, the pro-slavery government that's official applies with the Lecompton Constitution. And you do not get to vote for or against the Lecompton Constitution. What you do get to vote for is, is this constitution going to include slavery or is it not going to include slavery? But if it doesn't include slavery, there's a provision that any slaveholders that enter or have been there are protected and their slaves are slaves. So it's not really a question. It's, we're going to pretend to vote on this, and then we're all going to say yes. One, two, three, and then the Free Soilers boycott the polls. Um, and the Lecompton Constitution with slavery surprisingly passes with flying colors. James Buchanan uh, is the new president eventually. We'll talk about him later. He is pro-Lecompton, but Douglas may be feeling a little bad. Douglas of Illinois may be feeling a little bad says, you know what, we're going to have a popular vote on this Lecompton Constitution. The Free Soilers vote against it. Um, the Douglas Dems... So this does two things. One, it means Kansas is going to be a territory until 1861. Two, this splits the Douglas Dems from the South, and the last national party is truly split. Let's talk about Bully Brooks. So Bleeding Kansas is going on in 1858-ish. Charles Sumner the senator from Massachusetts is an abolitionist, virtuous, and hated. Um, he leads a speech. He talks about the crime against Kansas. He condemns slavery. He condemns South Carolina. He insults Andrew Butler, senator, well-loved in South Carolina, who, well-loved, but not virtuous on account of being pro-slavery. Um, Preston S. Brooks, a congressman and a distant cousin of Butler, if we haven't established he's a congressman, he's a congressman from South Carolina. Uh, he goes in and beats up Sumner with a cane, because apparently duels are below him, but hitting people over the head with a cane is not. 
Sumner's eventually going to die from complications. This Brooks resigns, and then South Carolina loves him so much that they re-elect him. Sumner is also re-elected, I think posthumously, not totally sure. Both sides are equally pissed by this. This is not a one side is clearly in the right, one side is clearly in the wrong here. Both people, or not both people, but both sides are very angry. So, the year is 1856. The Democratic Party has nominated Mr. James Buchanan, who has never touched Kansas, and they like it that way. The Republicans have their convention in Philly, and they nominate Captain John Fremont. Fremont. Um, the Democrats are running on popular sovereignty. The Republicans are running on free soil. The know-nothings are reestablished, and they're running on anti-foreignism. They're the American Party, because if you're not American, you can't be American. The American Party. They nominate Millard Fillmore. Their stuff, um, this is not what the book says, but this is my personal take. Their stuff is super anti-foreign. It's super anti-global. It's about the equivalent of banism today. Um, rumors about Fremont being a Roman Catholic spread. Uh, Buchanan, uh, is able to win the electoral for that reason. He loses the popular vote, though. He wins the electoral 174 to 114. Uh, Fillmore was nominated by the Know-Nothings, um, and he cuts into Fremont's total with eight electoral votes and a lot more actual votes. There were just too many doubts about Fremont to elect him. Um, moreover, the South says if that you elect him, we, we secede, which they say about Lincoln later. Um, but Fremont is not the right Republican for the time, and the longer that the North waits, the more likely the better off they are, the more likely they are to win an actual war. Right now, though, the North isn't ready for a war. Yes, the North hates slavery, they hate the South. They don't hate slavery, but they do hate the South. Um, and on that note, they sort of say, you know what, we're happy to wait it out. We don't really want a war right now. And in fact, the prevailing wisdom heading into the war, the Civil War, is not, let's go win back our brothers. It's, you can leave, just leave without a fight and leave quietly and leave peacefully and don't screw us over. So, the year is 1857. Dred Scott versus Stanford is a case that reaches the Supreme Court. It is the second day of the Buchanan administration. Scott is a slave who has been taken to the Illinois-Wisconsin area, and because the areas are free, he sues for his freedom. The Supreme Court rules against him because slaves are property and they cannot sue. However, the Chief Justice is Robert Taney from Maryland. He is a Southerner and a pro-slaver, and he wants this issue to be over. And so he says, what I'm going to do is take this as far as I can possibly take it, just so there will never be a question about any of this. So he says that slaves are slaves anywhere, and because they are property, um, the Fifth Amendment says that Congress or Congress and the courts cannot take them away. Um, unless there's an amendment to the Constitution, Congress cannot do anything about it. The Missouri Compromise, therefore, on those grounds was unconstitutional from the start. Congress cannot ban slavery, even if states don't even want it. Um, the South is pleased with this outcome. They think, wow, best case scenario. We got our guy and we got our 
we got our we got our we got our result and we got a lot more popular sovereignty people a little more apprehensive they don't really like what just happened uh abolitionists and free soilers and republicans are infuriated they can't believe that that just happened the democrats are as they seem to be lately split so the north decides you know what this is from a corrupt institution with a corrupt person at the head and they just ignore it they say we don't believe that this is true to which the south says how can we remain in a union with people who are more than willing to fight us on everything but when it doesn't go their way they just when it doesn't go their way and the courts back them up they're just willing to ignore it how can we stay in this union like this dred scott coincides with hard times it's not been a great start to the buchanan administration the panic of 1857 from inflation on california gold and overproduction of grain from the crimean war and over speculation of land and railroads and it all collapses gloriously into the panic of 1857 uh, 5,000 businesses fail uh, urban unemployment goes up the tariff of 1857 just earlier had rate had lowered duties to 20 percent so not a great start to the Buchanan administration the north was hit hard um, the grain areas in particular south floats on through they are live without cotton um, and this is going to be their thing, right? We don't need the North to survive. We don't need the industrial economy. And if we can build our own shipping and our own manufacturing, then there's no reason that fiscally this country, the, a country of Southern slave states, could not survive. Northerners start requesting or start pursuing this idea of free or low-cost farms from the government. Instead of them being sold away, the government should give them to the people in exchange for uh, developing that. Eastern industrialists don't want all their slave or all their uh, labor slaves basically to get up and go buy farms. They aren't fans. South, there's not going to be slavery on those farms that they're going to get because they're not going to be big enough, 150 acres or whatnot. We don't care. Later on, the Homestead Act passes um, 25 cents an acre. Um, it is vetoed, eventually passes. Um, also, a higher tariff is something that is requested and eventually does come through. And so this gives the Republican Party its first real platform, which is free farms, free soil, and higher tariffs, which is not a bad place to be to have a platform. And now all they really need is someone to lead them, a clear natural-born leader of the party. They don't have one yet. And immediately... Like a beacon in the night, here comes Mr. Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln. Now, I'm going to settle something for once and for all. Was he ever a senator? Here's the question. Here's what the thing says. No, he was never a senator. Maureen, you lied to us. Thank you, Maureen, for lying to us. The year is 1858. The Illinois... The Illinois... The Illinois... The Europe flashback... So I'll be pushing the AEs who have been uh, sticking around with me for the long haul. Um, in 1858, Illinois is having a Senate election. Um, Abraham Lincoln, who has been a member of the House of Representatives uh, from Illinois in the past, uh, runs as the Republican uh, against, against Douglas. Um, 
he married. Mr. Lincoln married a class above. He was a lawyer. He grew up in the log cabin. He's tall. He wore the top hat, had the beard, blah, blah, blah. Um, joins the Republicans and says to Douglas, you're a legendary debater, supposedly. You got rid of the Missouri Compromise by debating it away, so come debate me. Douglas says, okay, really? Um, people really think Douglas is going to wipe the floor with Lincoln uh, until the actual debate happens when Lincoln poses the Freeport question, uh, does the Supreme Court or the state decide on slavery if the state doesn't want it? Which leads to the Freeport doctrine that the state's always going to prevail if they're voted down because the state, therefore, is going to have to pass a law that protects slavery, but nobody's going to want to follow. Nobody's going to want to follow a law that no one, no one's going to be able to enforce a law. No one's going to be able to enforce a law that no one likes. So the law is essentially going to be dead in the water. It's the idea of popular sovereignty, but just in writing. Um. Douglas is going to win this election on popular sovereignty. Lincoln wins the equivalent of a popular vote. Basically, it's the way the Illinois election works is you vote for um, a state house representative of some sort and whichever representative and however many representatives there are for each candidate, the one with the most gets to elect their senator of their choice. Um, but uh, more people vote for Lincoln's Lincoln's party, the Republicans. However, this does catapult Lincoln into the national spotlight. Um, and the Democrats split a little more over the Freeport section, over the Freeport uh, doctrine. Back to John Brown. He's got a good headache, so I'm going to say it. John Brown, murderer or martyr. Uh, Brown invades West Virginia. He's a abolitionist um, vigilante. And he invades West Virginia and he calls upon all the slaves in the area to rise. Uh, he says that we have all of the arms from the area, from the federal munition there. And he says we're going to start a free black state there. So a bunch of abolitionists fund the trip to the, Har to the Harper's Ferry Arsenal. They take it. Then Robert E. Lee comes in and shuts it down because the slaves didn't hear about it or were afraid to go or didn't come. They didn't come, but they, it's hard to know why. Um... Brown is tried on and acquitted for, or not acquitted for, but found guilty of murder and treason. Instead of fighting it to the end, uh, he, you know, he was like, oh, he's insane. And when that didn't come through, instead of fighting it more and more, he just says, you know what? I'm going to be a martyr. I'm worth more to this cause dead than I am alive. He's courteous in his final trial. He trots right up those steps to be shot or hanged or whatnot. Um, the South thinks he's a murderer, but the North remembers him as a hero. Uh, the South, on the other hand, is like, we cannot be in a union with people like this. Uh, the North calls him St. John. The two sides are getting polarized, in case you don't know this. The year is 1860. The Democrats cannot nominate anyone in their convention in Charleston. Douglas is deemed a traitor over his actions regarding the Lecompton Constitution, uh, everyone walks out, they don't have a nominee. In Baltimore, the Douglas Dems finally prevail um, with a platform of popular sovereignty, popular sovereignty along with the Fugitive Slave Law, but the Southern Dems walk out, and they reconvene elsewhere, I think also in Baltimore, don't quote me, they nominate the Vice President, John C. Breckinridge, who basically wants to extend slavery um, and take Cuba. The moderates start the Constitutional Union Party, which is 
the Whigs, and others, and they nominate John Bull from Tennessee. So, the year is 1860 still. The Republicans uh, meet in Chicago uh, to nominate their candidate. W.H. Sewers is well-known, but he is too radical. Lincoln, less people know him, he's got fewer enemies, and he appeals to everyone. Um, he proves to feel free soilers, he, proves to, he appeals to people who like the idea of a higher tariff, immigrants, people who want the idea of a Pacific Rail Railroad, people who want internal improvements, people who want free frickin' farms. The South, as they said with the last Republican candidate, we're gonna leave if Lincoln wins. Lincoln's not an abolitionist. He doesn't want to help the South, but he doesn't want to abolish slavery. Lincoln has these crazy rallies. Lincoln is a really popular candidate in the North um, for all those reasons I listed earlier, and he wins the vote with 40%. He wasn't even on the ballot. He didn't even apply to be on the ballot in 10 states, the southern states. He is the definition of a minority president and really the result of two elections, one in the North and one in the South. Uh, Douglas comes in second in the popular vote. He only wins 12 electoral votes, though. The Northern and Southern Democrats had more than 300,000 more votes than Lincoln got, but the electoral map still wouldn't have worked out for them. South Carolina, first in war, first in peace, last in human decency, says we're out of here. Not many other states are threatening secession, though. Breckinridge was not a disunionist. The Supreme Court has a 5-4 majority for Southerners and pro-slavery people. The Republicans don't even have Congress. They just have the White House. And the slavery, yeah, the institution of slavery is going to have to change through the Constitution. But South Carolina calls a convention in Charleston, and unanimously, they secede. So, one is already out. John C. John J. Crittenden, who is a senator from Kentucky, is like, Whoa! A state just seceded. We need to stop this. So he introduces the Crittenden Amendments, which is the Missouri Compromise on Steroids, basically amendments to the Constitution that say, yes, there can be slavery, but it cannot be above the 3630 line, but it will be protected below it, and you can come in with or without it below that line. Lincoln says, you know what? Nope, we're not going to do a compromise here. Because if we do a compromise here, then suddenly we're stuck in this, we're, we're in this mess, we're in the belly of the beast, plus suddenly we're going out below 3630, you know, in the United States today, you think, oh, well, that means Arkansas, that means Florida, that means Arizona. Extended liberally, that means, that means Cuba, that means the Dominican Republic, that means Brazil, that means a lot of these places would have sent off a whole southern tinge of manifest destiny. After South Carolina, Alabama follows, then Mississippi, then Florida, Georgia, Louisiana, Texas, four more are going to come later in the spring. Lincoln still isn't president yet. Buchanan, though, is too old and too Southern advised to do anything. And it's too early on for the, for the Union to really do anything. So the Confederate States of America at Montgomery, Alabama are created. Jefferson Davis is their president, and they have some early momentum right out of the gate. The northern side is still waiting it out because if they fight now, they're seen as the aggressor. They need the army elsewhere in the west, and they still hope for reconciliation. It's, it's not going to happen, but they can still hope for, for reconciliation. So, secessionists 
are thinking the U.S. probably isn't going to mind that we leave. We can be economically independent anyways, right? Because after the Panic of 1857, we know what we're doing. They really did not think the North was going to care that they left. They, were, they thought the North was going to be happy to finally be on its own after so long. Um, spoiler alert, they were not. And the South, which is banking on establishing their own bank, and that will work, having a functional shipping trade, having European help, that does not come through for them. We'll find out more about that later in Chapter 20. But all of their hopes for real freedom hinge on that. They also see a little similarity to the American Revolution. They're like, oppressive king. They're thinking of the North as the king in this instance. An oppressive leader. We have our own ideas. We're not being allowed to do what we want. Let's leave. So the South, a lot of the South has left. More of it's going to leave soon. We're in a dangerous place, folks. So, chapter 19 in review... We have got Harriet Beecher and Uncle Tom's Cabin. We have got Bleeding Kansas and Bloody Brooks and his Bloody Bludgeon. We've got Dred Scott. We've got uh, the 1858 Illinois senatorial election. Senatorial elections mean something, folks. 1860 election, Abe Lincoln being elected president and the eventual secession of a whole lot of southern states. That's chapter 19. Chapter 20 is right along the way very soon. With that in mind, I'll see you shortly. Until then, it's a departure here on Pushing the A.